apart into groups, canonical and heretical, who considers himself to be a paragon of virtue because he doesn't own a car, and who thinks it is normal to divorce your wife if she disagrees with you over which sort of state-run school is best for your children. He is, let's say, an oddity. Or, put another way, he's a good old-fashioned political crank of precisely the type that the Tories love to fight. There's nobody in the world, John O'Sullivan once told me, who is right about everything. Those people simply do not exist. But, he suggested, there are plenty of people who are wrong about everything. Jeremy Corbyn is one of those men. Such as it is, his foreign policy involves being nice to all of the most vicious enemies of Western civilization. Hamas and Hezbollah are, in his word, friends, as were the murderous leaders of the Irish Republican Army while doing his part to weaken British power. More specifically, this would involve the unilateral abolition of Britain's nuclear deterrent, the UK's summary departure from NATO, and the opening up of the country's borders to all and sundry. Famously, Corbyn is unsure whether evil exists in the world, unless, of course, that evil has an American accent. The first Iraq war, he suggested in 1991, was the overture to a new world order, a convenient excuse for white and Western people to claim free use of all the weapons. Sure, Saddam Hussein might have been a touch mean to his people, but the real enemy of international liberalism was the war machine of the United States, which sought to maintain a world order dominated by the banks and multinational companies of Europe and North America. As for the invasion of Afghanistan in 2002, that was deeply suspicious, Natch, predicated as it was on the apparently shaky contention that Osama bin Laden was behind the 9-11 attacks. Bin Laden, Corbyn wrote in the communist newspaper Morning Star, was fingered rather too quickly for his tastes. Perhaps, he suggested, the evidence had been manipulated to justify an attack on the Taliban and regime change in Afghanistan. Perhaps. On the domestic front, Corbyn is mercifully a little less prone to conjecture. Nevertheless, he does appear to believe that the post-Thatcher pro-market consensus has been a horrible, horrible mistake, and that the voters who have demanded its preservation for more than three decades are now on the verge of a dramatic reversal. If the man's most recent promises are to be believed, a Corbyn-led government would seek to abolish the monarchy, to unify Ireland, to re-nationalize the railways, the utility companies, and some of the banks, to reintroduce women-only train carriages on that newly re-nationalized railway system, to raise taxes on businesses and the wealthy, to reintroduce rent controls in London and other major cities, to instruct the Bank of England to print money in order to fund housing, energy, and transportation projects, to abolish the charitable status of private schools, to roll the country's entire educational structure into a state-run national education service, and, if he has time, to impose a maximum wage on executives and other highly paid figures. In the meantime, Corbyn's shadow cabinet will go about formulating some of the most eccentric policy prescriptions of the modern era. The new shadow chancellor, John McDonnell, has promised that if he were to make it to the head of the treasury, he would fight for a 60% tax rate on the rich and, more bizarrely perhaps, increase the payroll contributions made by those earning more than £50,000 per year by seven percentage points. Asked a few years ago by who's who what he did for pleasure when not at work in Parliament, MacDonald answered, fermenting, sick, the overthrow of capitalism. This is not a man who messes around.
nor for that matter does Corbyn's shadow farming minister, Carrie McCarthy, who, in her role as a patron of the British Vegan Society, is a high-profile signatory to a declaration that all animal farming is unsustainable. I really believe that meat should be treated in exactly the same way as tobacco, McCarthy told bemused farmers in September, with public campaigns to stop people eating it. That should help Labor reconnect with rural voters. Quite why Labor has chosen this moment to turn the party over to the kooks and the diehards is something of a mystery, especially given that, at all levels of government, the Conservatives are ascendant. In Parliament, Labour has been reduced to just 232 of the 650 seats, and crucially, it has been wiped out in Scotland, a former stronghold. Locally, Labour has gone from controlling 47% of British councils in 1997 to controlling just one in four today.